Oh, this morning before we begin, uh, kids, you are dismissed to your classes. Um, so let everybody them go. This is even short for me. I'm the one who adjusted it. There we go. Much better. Welcome. Oh, come on. I know I normally do announcements, but come on. You should at least give me something. Thank you. I feel loved. Anyway, uh, we are in our second week of His Final Days series that we're doing leading up to Easter. And uh, we're going to talk about the day of Tuesday today. And uh, we're going to camp in uh, Mark 12, uh, 28 to 34. So if you have your Bibles, get them out, get your phone out, get your iPad out, whatever you need, so that we can camp right there and uh, we can go through that. So this morning, uh, we're going to take just a minute to have a prayer to center our hearts, get rid of the distractions, and uh, before we learn about God's Word. Lord, we just pray that you would uh, remove the distractions from our heads the world, the life, all the stuff that we need to do after church, all the things we need to do this week, um, all of those things, the troubles we might be going through or the excitements that uh, are distracting us as well, or just help us to uh, center in on your word this morning and what you have to teach us. We pray you bless this time with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about um, love. And, uh, but before we begin, let's talk about the context. So if we go back to verse 27 in chapter 12, Jesus has just finished silencing the Sadducees about their understanding of the resurrection. And now he gets an honest question, which if you, if you kind of read in this part of the Bible, you know that there weren't a lot of honest questions going on. There was a lot of trickery kind of going on. And so Jesus finally gets an honest question But the answer becomes a mind-blowing kind of concept, and we'll see why in a minute. And it's very, this idea that I want you to kind of put in your head as we go through this today, we're going to talk about this word that Pastor Mark made up and I stole called transformational, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so uh, I want you to think about that in our living and in our lives. So we pick up in verse 28 um, with the honest question. Read with me. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that, he answered them well and asked, which commandment is the most important of all? This was an honest question because it actually is a real question. It wasn't one that was meant to be trickery. But you might be sitting there and thinking, well, commandments, okay, there's ten. Everybody knows that ten commandments exist, right? If you're from a uh, state like mine, if you don't know, I am American. There are Ten Commandment monuments all over the place. And uh, so that's traditionally what we think of. But, however, in this time, in rabbinic tradition, there were 613 commandments. Of that, there were 248 that positive. You can think of those of your thou shalts. And... 365 negative of those the thou shalt nots. So you think this is a neat, uh, question that maybe you want to know the answer to? The idea that where, what do I do, what do I follow? Some were weighted higher and lower in priority, but this is an honest, valid question. Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus responds in verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so when Jesus responds here, he's actually quoting from the Shema, which is the Jewish statement of faith, which we find in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with all your strength. You will notice there the difference is his mind is left out in, the, in Deuteronomy. Jesus is telling them something they already know. This was found in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, right? So they already knew this, but Jesus added this one thing, your soul, your mind, your heart. So what does that mean to love God with all of these things? Why is this important? Why is this your first commandment? Well, this is your transformation. It's the God's love in us, right? That, we, that, that he's given to us that we then love him. It's a vertical relationship. It's the relationship between you and God. So we're going to explore each one of these today. The idea of heart, soul, body, and mind. So the concept of heart here is the passion that is in each one of us. In the Bible, the heart is more than a pumping station. It is a command center of the body where the decisions are made and plans are hatched. It is the center of our inner being, which controls our feelings, our emotions, our passions, and our desires. We can often assert or say that I believe this or my I want to do this, but our heart, they have, you know, a great person put it this way, that the telltale heart will betray you based on what you really believe, Right? We can say we think a certain way, or we can say we love God even with all our heart, but a priority might slip a little higher. Our heart reveals what we truly believe, and we see this in the Bible in Luke 15. So Jesus, um, there's, the, there's the story of the prodigal son. You may know it, you may not. It's a pretty easy story. It goes something like this. There are two sons and a father. And the father decide, or the father wants his sons to kind of work for him, right? One son is the obedient one. He's going to do everything that the father asks without question. The second son says, nope, I'm out of here. You know, it reminds me of when I went off to uh, college. A lot of people in my class were like, I'm out of this town, right? Like, we're going to go someplace else. Some people call him the rebellious son. So the son leaves to a far-off country. The father's yearning to reunite with his son, right? So his son comes home, and he's running to him. They're excited. And we see a lot of that. We throw a party. But what sometimes is overlooked is the obedient one. He's upset. He has no joy. His heart shows his true beliefs. And the reason why is, is that unlike his younger brother, he stayed at home. He obeyed his father. Some people even said, though, he, was in, he felt like he was a slave. He didn't have joy for working for his parents or for his father. He instead just begrudgingly did his duties. Because probably deep within, he wanted to leave. But he didn't. So our heart is something that really changes 
in terms of who we are, right? Like, if you love God with all your heart, your actions will be different than if you believe X. Another easier way to put this is, we go back to Mark and I spoke on giving a couple of weeks or three weeks ago, and we talked about the verse in Matthew chapter 6, 21, where our treasure is, our heart will be also. So what you treasure, what you value is where your heart is at. Do you value God? Do you value your relationship, that vertical relationship with him? An easy one and a great example to put it in today's kind of context, I could say that I am a devout Rough Riders fan. I am going to wear green. I am going to, you know, drive to Saskatchewan every weekend that they are home next year and watch it. And I'm excited that they stole Edmonton's coach. Nobody believes me. But, but my heart will betray me because of what I place my kids in. I can't help it. I have been a Stamps fan since I was like this big. And when you end up watching a family friend go through college, come to the CFL, end up playing, end up assisting coaching, and now is the head coach of the best team in the league, I just can't. My heart betrays me. So the idea that you love God with all your heart God wants that heart to be number one in you. He wants you to love him with everything. Don't put something else before him. He wants your passion to be for him as number one. Number two, we talk about soul. And as I was contemplating this week, soul for me really came down to how is my soul communing with God? It's been said that God gave breath into the soul of humans. The soul is a source of vitality in life. It is the motivating power that brings the strength of will. Together with heart, the soul determines our conduct. Which really kind of, as I was studying, the idea of prayer kept coming up. The idea of we need to be in prayer for God's power, for his will in our soul. So that our soul exudes like the Apostle Paul. In his writings, he, Paul said that his soul was so consumed by God that he, was, he had to be constrained. He was constrained to preach. He had to press on. He had to fight the good fight. That soul in you, combined with your heart, should want to just yearn this exusion of God. As you spend more time in prayer with him and commune with him, you will get this kind of action you'll feel. Loving God with your soul means committing your energy and prayer to him. So the new one in this concept that wasn't in Deuteronomy is our mind, our intelligence. We must love God with all our mind. We must love God with our intelligence. We need to commit our minds so that, to God so that we can offer society the vital know why to the know how. We often know how to do Christian life. We often know what maybe the Bible instructs us to, but we can't often give the why we did it or why we do it. We have to know why. This week, I'm reading this new book. Um, if you know me at all, you know that I am a addicted book guy. Um, uh, from Jeff Vanderstelt, it's called Gospel Fluency. And the idea of Gospel Fluency is that 
you're able to have a conversation and interject gospel truths into it. And as I was reading, a, a part struck me that really hit me on the why section this. He really states that we talk about what we love. So you ever go to a party or you ever go have some friends? We talk about what we love, right? We talk about what sports team we're into, what maybe we're going to do on the weekend, if we saw a new movie, whatever it might be. Our kids, athletics, uh, the best book you've read, whatever it might be. The idea here is that what does your mind focus on? Is it focusing on God and not that those things are bad? It's just the idea is, is God your number one priority in your mind? It's almost like a focus. So if any of you know me well enough, you know that Ikea furniture and I do not get along. So, like, Ikea furniture requires focus. You know, because I believe all those holes should be in the right place and all the hardware should come in the box and nothing should be chipped or broken, which I know is a fantasy. But that focus, the immense focus it takes for me to be able to try to put together a piece of Ikea furniture leads to frustration. The blessing is if you focus on God, he will give you inner peace and help you. So that is the better focus for me and we leave the Ikea furniture to Kelsey. Or Pastor Tony, by the way, from our Mandarin church, loves Ikea, putting together Ikea furniture. So, just a tidbit for you. Um, So the why has to come out of this love. Why do I love God? So if someone asked me, why am I a Christian, why do I love God? It's because of what God saved me out of. Out of the brokenness, out of the trials, out of the struggles I had. doesn't mean I don't still have them. It means that I have someone who... I know in my heart loves me unconditionally. There's no more judgment. There's grace. So to know the why is important. Finally, strength. As we talk about our fourth one that Jesus mentions, strength. So are we talking about physical strength? Most of you know I've been going to the gym and now I can pick up the 30-pound dumbbells instead of the 10-pound ones. That's a big accomplishment for me. You know, these skinny arms can't really pick up much. Pastor Mark and I would not be in a good competition because he'll be able to, like, bench press, like, 300 pounds, and I can lift a 10-pound dumbbell. So, um, But it's also about your possessions as well. It's the strength and the capacity that you give. And the great story is, and in, in farther on in Mark 12, you'll see the widow's two mites, or some people call it the two coins. Her love for God, she gave all she had. She had this strength of faith that she placed those coins in there. The rich gave to God what they skimmed off the top out of their abundance. She didn't worry about it. She, she did what she was led to in faith in order to honor and serve God. That takes strength, and I think we don't always talk about that. We think of strength as muscle, or we think as strength of perseverance. We don't always think of Strength isn't a step of faith, but sometimes it is. But God wants you to love him through all of those. So in this first part is the commandment that is transformational. God wants to transform your heart, your soul, your mind as you love him. It's this vertical relationship 
Jesus doesn't stop there, though. So we have this vertical relationship. That's great. I now love God. I put him as my number one priority in life. He's the one I'm going to follow. Unfortunately, Jesus said, guess what? We have a second part. And reading in verse 31, it says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and no other commandment is greater than these. So this is your action step. You don't get to just do the vertical, you have to do the horizontal in a relationship. And they're, and they're, they're not, they can't be separated, right? They're stuck together. So how do we do that? Well, it's real easy. We got an example in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So the Great Commission is your step of action that Jesus offers you. The idea of, we've heard for, you know, if you've been around, whether even when I was a non-believer, the idea of love your neighbor as yourself always came up, right? But I found the way someone else put it, and it said, love others as well as you love yourself which really kind of struck me in the idea that we decide to love others as well as we love ourselves. We can love our neighbor as ourselves, but the idea that as well as you love yourself kind of adds a different component to it. And you might be saying, well, there's lots of people that do great things and whatever. You know, if I grab, uh, you know, one of my friends who is an atheist and we go down and we go to Hope Mission, or we go to the Mustard Seed, they would serve a meal with me, right? They would hand out clothes, they would collect things, but there's a disconnect there for them because they're missing that love of God part. The distinction as Christians is the love aspect. Love God, the love God has put in you through the vertical relationship now has to be expressed in your horizontal relationships outwardly. The world may be able to love others, but they need. But Christ adds this extra aspect. You know the gospel. You get to communicate with them and share the good news of Jesus more than just serving someone. So the two key points here are love God and love others, right? And if you, if you have your bulletin with you, you'll see on the front, this is really what we believe or, you know, what we're striving for as un, imperfect people, to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus. This is who Jesus called us to be. When you have this deep relationship with God that's overflowing vertically, this horizontal will overflow. It also can be squashed, let's be honest. You could have this conviction to go do X, like serve your neighbor, or to help that person who's stranded on the side of the road, but something else is more important. But part of it is, is that vertical relationship you have. Do you have that love with Jesus? Do you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? As I mentioned, I've been reading this book called Gospel Fluency. 
Two years ago, I got to go to this conference in Calgary. Someone invited me to it. It was 100 or 150 people. A businessman had given out his kind of warehouse for a Saturday to let Jeff fly in and uh, have this opportunity to speak to us. And the idea of this gospel fluency really came out in how we be the church. How do we make both of these kind of meld together, right? And it really hit me because he was talking about gospel fluency, about how to have conversations in everyday life, right? But as pastors, a lot of people there, and including me, were saying, okay, what's the method, right? We want the method. We want to make this reproducible. I need to teach this to a gazillion people. And instead, Jeff said to us, this is an intentional overflowing that has to take place inside each person. That vertical and horizontal meet. So oftentimes we hear that people have struggled with this outward part, right? Like we can do the serving part, but adding the Christ part or adding the gospel part into the outward flow is hard. Most people would probably say that they would feel uncomfortable if I walk up to them and say, say I'm at Brown's at lunch and I walk up to the waitress and say, hey, can we have a talk about Jesus? What do you think she's going to say to me? probably going to look at me and, I don't know, she might say something that's not appropriate. But anyway, the idea that it's uncomfortable, right? Like we've all been there, or most of us probably have been there when someone knocks on your door. But the idea here is, is that the relationship aspect, this being involved in the lives of your neighbors and others, is what allows you to be able to speak life and truth into them. So the example is given that at a dinner party, and this is a dinner party where you actually know people. It's not one you have just crashed because you think it might be fun. Uh, I can't remember which. Jeff or his wife mentioned this. And so they were chatting with a group of people standing around, and it was a cocktail hour, and some people had some wine. And so partway through the conversation, someone, either him or his wife, mentioned, do you know Jesus drank wine? And it's the idea that that concept, the idea that on their minds was to how to talk about Christ. And it didn't come across in this weird, awkward kind of way. It came across as this is relational. Now, you might not use that in your everyday circles, but there are other examples that you can use. There are two parts of this relational aspect, walking with others and being conscious of our opportunities for gospel conversation. When loving others allows us to see how God sees them. Now, you might have noticed on the uh, bulletin, it says saving the best for last. What does that mean? The greatest commandment really was Jesus telling us how to live, but it was also the last question. In verse 32 to 34, you can read with me. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as yourself, is much more than a whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus answered wisely, saw that he answered wisely, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And after that, no one dared to ask any more questions. What Jesus gave him, gave the answer was this transformational. It's transformational as we have this vertical relationship with God. It's missional as we reach out to others. We can be transformed and continue to grow in God's love and our love for him. But God wants you to place that as number one. So number one in your life needs to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There shouldn't be anything else that takes precedence above that. Now, if there are times where you go, you know what? My priorities are getting out of whack and this has gone down to number two, three, four. Shift it back up. Spend some time with God. As we close today, um, there, we're going to watch a little video. And uh, part of the reason I wanted to watch the video is it really shows this love that God has for us and that as we've been transformed, the love we have for him. But it also shows the relationship side of things. You'll have to look for it, but a- as you think through what happens on the video, I think back to when I became... Um, saved, there were lots of people and lots of relationships. So if lots of people didn't have the, in my life, they had the vertical. They were communed with God. But they also had this outward flowing that allowed them to tell me, to sit me down, to have conversations with me. And they just were amazing in that they allowed me to grow in my walk. They didn't judge me. They showed God's grace through it all. And so as you watch this video, I want you to kind of understand these kind of two concepts melded together of loving God and God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself.